Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, welcome to this month's episode of AMR Studios. Today we have an interview that Eva held with Dr. Christian Munthen, who's a professor in practical philosophy at the University of Gothenburg. He's also a part of CARE, which is sort of a parallel organization to the UAC at the University of Gothenburg, and he's one of our first ethicists on this show. He was also here for a seminar on ethics and antibiotics that was held at the UAC on the 8th of April this year. We hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, welcome. We have today with us Dr. Christian Munze coming from the University of Gothenburg. And he's been with us at UAC to be part of a workshop on ethics and antibiotics. He is a philosopher and he works with the ethics implications and ethic work on AMR, how important ethics is for the AMR discourse and how ethics applies to policy changes within AMR. Thank you so much for being with us, Christian. Oh, uh, pleasure. Could you please introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience and tell a little bit about your background? Yes, my background is I'm a philosopher, but I worked my entire career with ethical issues applied to uh, health and healthcare and uh, science and technology and also other areas, but those have been dominant and my work in this area came about like in two steps I could say so in the early 21st century I was involved in in with a lot of other people uh, to start up a new area of public health ethics so public health is of course really important but not so much ethical discussions had been connected to it not in a systematic way so I was involved in that project and that interest has sort of stayed with me And after that, I became involved in the Center for Antibiotic Resistance Research in Gothenburg, basically through contacts, because I work a lot of interdisciplinary already. So I came into contact with researchers there who were working in this field and had interest in this field. And then there was an opportunity to compete for starting new centers for global challenges. And we said, okay, so let's go for this. And we were lucky and and successful. So And then it became a major concentration. So you were part of the birth of the center in Gothenburg. Yes, 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 I was. So the whole thing with that particular thing was that it was a requirement for the center to uh, attack a global challenge. And it needed to be highly interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So that meant that you had to build on established, basically, contacts. Mm -hmm. But CARE, the center now, is we have people across six faculties. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really broad in that sense. And we have social scientists and economists and psychologists and people in education. But, of course, also the health sciences and natural sciences. And then uh, me from the humanities. Yeah, this is a little bit like what we are also building here in, yeah. in UAC. So CARE has been a big example for us oh, in great. order to yeah, build yeah. our center. Talking perhaps a little bit about your particular area of interest yeah. and your work, could you explain to our audience what is it that you do when it comes to bridging ethics and AMR? So that's, it's interesting because we're doing, I would say that we do like three things. So one thing is that, of course, whenever you're going into an area where you have a lot of conflicts of interest and dilemmas, and you always have that basically in public health, between collective interest and private interest, between the present and the future and so on, uh, 
you need to an ethicist contribute by analyzing these dilemmas by explaining their parts and how they relate to each other but also proposing solutions basically and then you might have debates over those solutions that's of course one part of it but another part is also to recognize that different people reason in different ways so even if i make a certain conclusion in an ethical issues like for example how much should we withhold antibiotics in healthcare although that might create risks and downsides for individual people so in order to manage this problem this that's one of the sort of classic issues and different people might make different assessment about that come to different conclusions so a secondary thing that you do i've discovered in this work actually that you do as an ethicist is to help to understand how people might reason not how they should reason but how they might reason from different kinds of values that are or are not held by different people and that can then feed into for example a social science work so yeah. where a social scientist could go out okay so let's look for these values and mm-hmm. see how common are they and how do people actually reason and then i can also contribute to interpret the social science results so we can have an interesting collaboration in that sense so it becomes and that's kind of a, a little bit of a new role for ethics for me although i already been quite interdisciplinary and the third thing and that's important for the third thing and the third thing is to become more constructive actually so usually as a philosopher you're kind of analytic you're kind of passive in the way that you're looking at the problems you're you're producing your solution and how it should be understood and what should be done and then you say okay people don't do it okay that's their problem it's a thought exercise yeah more like a thought exercise but now we're actually putting thought to use in in designing interventions and policy suggestions and so on so we're talking about this as a social innovation side of this work so we're now moving from scientists to engineers in a way so it's thought, <laughs> social engineering yeah, yeah kind of but more like conceptual engineering yeah. engineering of frames of thinking mm-hmm. and possible normative solutions then because a lot of the also the policy solutions here are dependent on normative things like regulatory systems that impact healthcare for instance mm-hmm. or impact the regulation of farming mm-hmm. or or all of these are full of rule systems and normative things around safety standards mm. and uh, standards for cost benefit calculations and all kinds of and all of these are sort of full of ethical assumptions and you can change those ethical assumptions and rebuild the systems on changed assumptions and that and then you can propose for example one very simple example would be that for example now when we are deciding in society whether or not the national health service should buy a new drug mm-hmm. certain things are being taken account of the first is the licensing of course you need to be licensed which is a minimum of safety and effect but the next step is then the cost and the actual effect of the drug and how that relates to treatment guidelines and stuff like that but in this cost certain things are being accounted for but other things are not being accounted mm. for and one cost of course in this area is the risk 
that consumption of the drug will contribute to an expansion of the problem mm. of, of antimicrobial resistance. So one idea would be this, but shouldn't this cost be accounted for when we think about whether or not it's worth it to pay money for a new drug, for instance? But on the other side, you have the other problem that not enough new drugs are being produced mm-hmm. in this area. So if you do it like that and treat new drugs as more expensive, then we are less willing to buy them. Mm-hmm. So that would create a dilemma because we also want industry to produce a lot of new antibiotics. But they are not will not be as interested of doing that if we don't want to buy the products. So now we have identified, okay, so you could wiggle with these assumptions in the rules in the system. But when you test this particular one, you also discover a dilemma. Mm-hmm. So there's a conflict built into the different considerations in the system. A third conflict here is so not only between industry interested of selling and our interest in controlling consumption but also the interest for example to uh, reduce healthcare cost mm-hmm. which is a huge aim for politicians and maybe it's impossible to manage this problem without accepting higher healthcare costs, Health for, costs for, yeah. for, for instance, right? So my role and, and the people I work with in this area is then to make this salient to make this sense. So here is an actual dilemma. And in order to get X, we have to be able to sacrifice something else. Mm. So, so, and then you can have the normative discussion is then about on what grounds should you decide how much you sacrifice to get what you're after, basically. Yeah, because I kind of think like when you are put into, into these dilemmas, yeah. one way to try to come up with a solution what side to take or what solution to take would be to maybe put into numbers, right? Because yes. those we tend to think that numbers are things that we can compare. It mm. gives us our ground to compare or there are mm. objective ways to compare. But with those ethical issues that you are bringing up, it might be very difficult for some of them to actually put a value or put a number on it. Well, you can use, I think you can use uh, quantitative ways of looking at problems to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I think the question of benefits and burdens and benefits and costs, you can put numbers on it, although you have to be aware that they're very rough. Mm-hmm. But other things might be very difficult to put numbers on. So one part of the dilemmas that might pop up in this area is, for example, that uh, there's a conflict between what the clinical doctor perceives as his or her uh, sort of duty of care to an individual patient and the duties to preserve sort of the functionality the society, of the health yeah. system mm-hmm. or something like that. And then there are aspects of that that can, numbers can be put on the societal side of the problem. But the other part of the problem is about something else. It's about something qualitative, about sort of, well, as the doctor of this person, I'm taking on myself to take care of her. And therefore, I can't deny her whatever it is that could have a benefit, right? I mean, that's not to say that this is how a doctor must think reason, or, right? Yeah. But, but if you think in that direction and perceives the dilemma, one, end, one horn of the dilemma will be a qualitative thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the importance of keeping a role or a promise or acting out of duty or something well, like that. Well, it is the, the Hippocrates oath 
that doctors do? So, that is supposed to do no, no harm? Well, not, yeah, more important, I think, is the, the responsibility you have to your patient. And yeah. because that's the moral so, responsibility. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's also part of all professional codes, that yeah. this is what should always come first. Mm-hmm. And when you have a conflict between that and more societal concerns, you should, as a doctor, go for the patient. patient yeah. And then doctors are different to what extent they follow that, right, mm-hmm. In when you have dilemma situations. And, of course, doctors sometimes participate in societal projects mm-hmm. that go against some individual's interests. But however you trade it off, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the dilemma will always be there. And the fact that you can trade it off in different ways tells you that, okay, so if we introduce a solution... That means that an individual doctor will have to deny this thing to the patient. And you can make good arguments for that solution. It's not necessarily so that the doctor will accept the argument. So even if I think it's a good argument and politicians think it's a good argument and we researchers think it's a good argument, the doctor might feel that intrudes on the sort of clinical ethics. And that's important because it needs to be discussed, but it's also important because if that would undermine legitimacy of actions that we take in order to manage the problem, that's a threat against the effectiveness Mm. of what we do. So there are all of this, so I would say there are like four layers Mm -hmm. in that sense of of the way that you can discharge philosophy in this area. So we work on sort of more theoretical issues, but also very, very hands-on. It has to do with both designing policy, but also trying to ensure that policy is actually effective. If there is anything that I can say I've taken from attending this workshop, mm. is that now I believe that ethics, it's, you could argue, almost part of the sub-problems of AMR, right? Or ethics yes. can be applied to so many different aspects of AMR, yes. because we always say, well, AMR is not one problem, it's a biological problem, it's a societal problem, it's an economical problem. Mm. But if you actually think about it, you could apply ethics to every single one of these Yes, in a way. Yes, and I think it's because the AMR, already when you see that AMR is a problem, you're doing ethics. Mm-hmm. Because you're saying this is important enough for us to do something about it. And that's an ethical judgment. Mm-hmm. That's saying that this is worth spending resource and time over in order to try to avoid something, right? So that's an ethical judgment, the kind of ethical judgment we're doing all the time. I think it's good that our audience get this point. So mm. every time we think about a problem, this is doing ethics. Is yeah, as soon as you think about what to do, you're actually involving yourself in a moral reasoning, Listening, right? Yeah. And then you can do it for, I mean, short. Most of us do this very short, right? So you, I'm quickly thinking and, about yeah. very, very quickly when you're crossing the street, you, you're making, okay, so there's a car coming there. Should I run over or should I safety first? And uh-huh. so, that's also moral calculation in a way, although it's mostly about your self-interest. But mm-hmm. yeah. Very, <laughs> very interesting uh, to think about. Mm. So there is a question that we tend to to ask people, especially people that have been working for many years that have the, the capacity to have an overview of their field. You work in ethics and you worked in public health, yeah. ethic applied things, and then in AMR. But can you say that your field has changed over the years in a specific way? Or how your perhaps your field has been used in the society or the applications of your field? 
So what I can say in the following, the way that I do the research and the sort of what come out of the research has changed due to my contact with this field. So philosophy is is basically very theoretical. <laughs> so I'm, I'm professor of practical philosophy, but I always say when people ask me what that is, it's just as theoretical as theoretical philosophy. <laughs> so because it's basically that you're doing philosophical reflection that relates to some kind of practical issue, which has some issue that has to do with what to do and what to think about things, right? So it's values and actions. And I become less theoretical, over the years, I become more involved, but it also has to do with this interdisciplinarity. And because I've always collaborated in my PhD, I didn't collaborate so much, but since after my PhD, I always had sort of people I worked with geneticists, with all kinds of people, and you learn things from them, and they hopefully learn something from you. Then, gradually, over the years, I sort of developed my way of doing that. So when I started, I would never have been able to do all these four layers that I described. Mm-hmm. I would have been able to do maybe two, mm-hmm. perhaps only one. So that sort of increased. And it also means that the collaboration, the interdisciplinary collaboration, becomes much more rich and mm-hmm. intense. And true. and true. And true, I would say also. And the potential of actually getting something out of it mm-hmm. increases. So, so there's learning both ways on several levels at once. So, yeah. so, so I think that's really that's really big change. But that's more of a personal change for me. If I look at my field, I would say that the field of bioethics, which is sort of the broader term that includes public health ethics, has also changed in this direction. Also, that it's becoming less only philosophy, and which been sort of very apparent today that all of us three philosophical speakers have also cited a lot of empirical research, oh, yeah, and, that, and that's a big difference to when I started because then you would only cite philosophers and say that well, okay, so there are empirical issues, but that's for the empirical yeah, scientists. So, 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 so people thought something. Yeah, but... that's that's up to them to you know to find out the facts. And that has changed. So now I realize in order to work in this area and get something out of it, both personally, but also to contribute, you need to learn a lot of stuff, right? And then I realized that I can, of course, never learn biomedicine down to the specifics that someone who's trained in that field can do. Mm-hmm. But they can't learn philosophy at the level exactly. either. So mm-hmm. that's fine. And you accept... Within our limitations, Yes, right? and you can accept your limits. And at certain point, you stop talking about the specifics and you talk about more sort of metaphors instead. Yeah. Uh, but that's fine, I think. And uh, when we look at it on the other way, yeah. have you seen that the more natural sciences, more applied people have became more open to accept the ethical and the philosophical discourse within their own work? This depends, I would say. So this is also, I think, an explanation to why I work on this issue, because the people in this field, they have realized this, the importance of that. And it was never a problem. I didn't have to, you know, persuade anyone yeah, you were kind of invited in, like, we, we need yeah, this, we, we want Yeah, but we this. just started to talking, and, and so I started talking to Joachim Larsson, who was the one that we formed, this, so he's now the leader of the center, and he told me about his research on the environmental mm-hmm. emissions of antibiotics in, from factories, and I thought, wow, I said, so that's really scary, yeah, and what can be done about it? I mean, immediately started to talk, how could you fix this? And, of course, immediately said, okay, so here will be all these dilemmas and problems on how to do this. 
on very, very many levels, uh, both sort of ethics, hardcore, but also politics, of mm-hmm. course. So it was it was very immediate, and it was an immediate receptiveness to that kind of, of thought. So sometimes it's like, yeah, 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 of course, it's all these complications, but I want to do my thing, that, which is fine also. But then I was so this was sort of attracted me to to keep working in this field, I would say. Yeah, I was actually thinking about the challenges on communicating people from different fields, right? Because yeah. you were saying like you, of course, don't assume you're gonna learn or understand the biologics of resistance down to the level as a geneticist might but you still need to be able to talk to the geneticist and understand the problem at a central level have you faced challenges in that sense both getting the information in but also getting the information out not in this area but in other areas yes because it has to do with the willingness of so perhaps sometimes it is sort of the willingness of the specialist to communicate to a non-specialist mm-hmm. at all. So some specialists are not interested in that. They want to talk with the other specialist and talk with the sort of the lingo that you use for that. And that's fine, but then you shouldn't try to collaborate really. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so my way of doing this is find the people that have the willingness and... And there are also philosophers that are not interested at all in doing the kind of thing that I do, mm-hmm. and which is also fine because they are specialists on other things and sometimes I ask them something that I need to know from them, right? So it's, I think it's a division of labor yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. And when you have people that orient themselves towards more of a generalist stance, but you're still a specialist to a certain extent, these are the people that need to find each other in, in various ways. We are generally very curious of the following. Um, What do you think is most misunderstood about your field? And this could be towards the general public, this could be towards colleagues or people of other disciplines, but something that that you struggle to uh, put across. So what sort of, I think, all applied philosophers struggle a little bit with is that on the medical side and natural science side, but maybe even more on the medical side, there's an idea of the humanities as a kind of entertainment. Uh, <laughs> that, oh, it's about reading good books and being uh, scholarly and knowing a lot of stuff and so on. But philosophy is very little like that. Philosophy is more like mathematics. It's, it's a way of being very ordered and analytic in your head, and but be able to apply it to any kind of situation, really. So, But, I mean, so that misunderstanding is often cleared up very quickly. So when I do a presentation, because it's very, very quickly, they discover, oh, it's something else than what I thought. Mm-hmm. I thought... This person was going to come and, you know, make judgments on what's right or wrong for us or to be like a priest or to be to be like an entertaining, you know, like like an author that that makes a very scholarly lecture or something like that. But I never do. I always have this sort of pretty analytical mm-hmm. kind of way of trying mm-hmm. to connect dots uh, <laughs> related to some areas. So that's the most, I don't find it a challenge so much anymore. It was more of a challenge when I was younger and, and became embarrassed and didn't know what to do. But but nowadays I'm sort of very aware of it. And I also know that I, I manage it quite well. I think you can probably find the same kind of thing as if you're more of a natural science person and you would approach a balance of humanists. They will think, oh, they only know about numbers, numbers and, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, strange substances and things like that. And then it comes out that this person is, is as I found 
often is that this person is just as good as you know having a qualitative discussion and the thought process uh, yeah and, and the thought you... process and you and basically comes out that most people in academia are highly analytical people in all areas right yeah even and, the humanities and the social sciences yes and then it's more of a question where you put your horses basically in what stable and you happen to put your horses here and then you're you're trained from that side right but the general skills that you have mm-hmm. will be very very similar where do you think this pre-assumption comes from i don't know i think there is a tendency in all fields to feel that we know best about everything and the other <laughs> are less knowledgeable this is part of a snobbery that you find in academia in all disciplines and the other are idiots we are the geniuses and it's kind of childish and a little bit infantile but it's there And I think it's good to see it and then try to be something else. (laughs) We need to start wrapping up our conversation because we had a very tight day. But uh, I would like to ask you if you have anything you would like to say to our audience having this opportunity to talk to, you know, very broad and different type of audience and... Yeah, so one thing is that, uh, of course, the issue of antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic resistance in particular is a very important one. And I'm very happy, really, that there's so much activity in Sweden. So we have all the activities that goes on here in Uppsala, mm. uh, but also the center in Gothenburg. And one of the things that I would like to see more of is uh, kind of more of national collaboration and also collaboration across the hubs that we also have in the other Nordic countries. Because also I think these, especially Norway, Sweden, Finland, are so so similar from an institutional standpoint. So a lot of the, a lot of sort of, if we're going to try out new policies and evaluate them well and and be able to do maybe controlled studies, which I would like to do with Mm -hmm. policies to really see if they work, that would be really beneficial, I think, to we collaborate. We could pull the data, perhaps. Yeah, we uh, could pull the data in various ways and do it a little bit different in different places, you know, so you can compare and have controls. What do you think it's needed to get to the higher collaboration stage? Well, a lot of activity, I think. So, so I mean, I don't think that's so different from other areas of research, right? Mm-hmm. So... So you need to do that. But then, of course, it would also, I think, important to have... uh, It must be done in a certain way. So, of course, there is always a bit of competition in in science. But I think this is an area where everybody has a lot to win from more collaboration. Yeah. So there's always, there's already, I think, a good sort of atmosphere of collaboration in this field, uh, much more better than in other. But but there's also, especially maybe in the medical side, is the, you have a culture of competition and mm. you know, keeping things from each other and so on. So I, I would sort of, I think that everybody has something to win from increasing collaboration. But I think activity uh, on the national and the Nordic level, basically trying to pull together workshops and symposiums. I, I and, ag- totally agree with you. Yeah. I think that we are now in a good standpoint where we have several yeah. centers that are now established. Yeah. So a lot of resources and efforts, of course, is go to start these centers. But once they're established, I think the next yeah. step would actually... And also, we all have strong public agencies that can help us with that. Mm. But, uh, so there's also a Nordic sort of um, infrastructure mm. in place in a certain way that you, it can be used for that. Yeah, so 
we do, we do hope that this is also the next step and that we're going to be a part of it, Great. obviously. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, pleasure. the time to talk to us. Yes. And uh, I really hope that uh, our audience enjoyed the interview Great. as much as I did. And again, thank you. Hi, welcome back from this interview. So, Paul, Jenny, what did you guys uh, thought? What are your, your insights about this interview with our first ethicist? So it was really interesting. And to be honest, I didn't really know what an ethicist did in a more applied way. Like I've always kind of wondered and it was really interesting to hear Dr. Mintha talk about it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I didn't understand at least how ethics could be applied in the wider sense of mm-hmm. AMR. And after listening to this interview, I think I've, it's just been a learning curve the whole way. And what is ethics and, you know, right. what, what's and included that, in, yeah. Yeah, how that fits in the wider scope of AMR. And yeah. clearly there's a link. Oh, Definitely. As I mentioned in the interview, I think after attending that workshop and then talking to him, kind of feels like everything on AMR would have some sort of aspect yeah. of mm-hmm. ethics involved in it. And he, I mean, he kind of says like uh, anytime you take a decision, you are doing ethics because yeah. you had to wait Uh, values and you had to weight costs and then mm. you had to take decisions mm-hmm. on that and that's kind of doing ethics mm. so it, it was really yeah, yeah. enlightening as well I thought it was very interesting his background with the policy side which that was part of his talk was policy and antibiotic mm. ethics how we value costs we we're talking about the cost of a new drug okay mm. well it's not just the cost of producing it's the cost like the value to the patient and the cost to society in mm-hmm. the case of antibiotics and it was really interesting like this whole concept of cost and then what can you put in numbers and what's more of a qualitative mm-hmm. uh, that part of the discussion I think was really interesting and really kind of conceptualizing something that's very difficult for us in this field specifically yeah because well I guess that was my question coming from a more technical background that uh, when What you put things onto onto numbers then you can compare them yeah but I would say that maybe just because you can put something on a quantitative matter one of something might not equal one of another thing exactly right? how do like, you so, like balance these different Yeah, because if you are talking about money, then yeah, okay, dollars to dollars. But like when we say like compare these uh, apples to oranges, it's Mm -hmm. like, is it the same thing to compare five Mm -hmm. apples to five oranges? So just because you can put it into numbers doesn't mean that they they are equally valuable. It is very interesting because I think the direction which more studies nowadays are going into, it is a mixed methods Mm -hmm. uh, kind of study. So you have both usage of quantitative and qualitative in order to untangle this uh, example you just talked about mm-hmm. this one does not really equal one so you do need that qualitative approach to understand yeah. that right and i thought another thing that was interesting that he was talking about was that part of his role in this was to bring up the potential thoughts like not this is the right thing to do but what are the potential things that people will do or what they'll think to understand how people think more yeah. than to say this is how people should think right because that's what i've always kind of assumed wrongly and that's why we like asking this question is what is a misunderstanding in your yeah. field and whatnot but my in, in ethics was a lot of it's talking about what's the right thing to do right and I guess it is sometimes when you look at the trying to value things, but he described it as a lot of what are potential things that come mm. up. And I thought that was really interesting to bring in this discussion of that his role is to bring up these potential ideas mm. or in reactions. Yeah, yeah, the thing that he commented that, you know, humanities are seen more as an entertainment. Oh, this person yeah. is going to come here and be a preacher, <laughs> give us a lecture. Yeah. And that he actually works with more practical issues and yeah. applied issues and mm. the idea that they actually try to put thought into use, which mm-hmm. in AMR, of course, is very important when you're trying to change behaviors we're mm-hmm. talking all the time about what is the best practices how do we reach out to people and make them understand mm-hmm. how they should 
behave towards antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And I do see that there's huge value on what they do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. To kind of tie into that a little bit, so one of the last things that you guys just kind of brought in at the end was the idea of a controlled study of policy in the, he brought up in, in the Nordic countries, maybe where we have similar health infrastructures and whatnot, where from what I understood, it was basically like you have to try to implement different, slightly different policies in these different countries so that you can actually evaluate after the fact how do they impact? How do yeah. they impact? And I feel like that's a very challenging and quite brave thing to try. I but completely agree with that, but I think it is a... It would be it's good. Unique, I mean, yeah, uh, where, you, where would you ever get that ability? And I don't know if there are other places in the world that ha- would have the same situation where you could try things in different countries. Probably but. not. <laughs> I mean, you could do it as a as a state level, for example, yeah. in right. in a in a national context, and mm-hmm. then you work with different states that will have some sort yeah. of control over how the state laws work. Yeah, the right. United States, for example, will have such. That's a, true. But I think it would be really interesting, right? Uh, it would be very challenging. Yeah. I mean, and also, I what would be the ethics based on deciding exactly. to implement different exactly. policies in different places that has such a similar context, right? Yeah. Because it is kind of like a societal experiment or country yeah. experiment. You're, you're experimenting on people in a different way. And right. but, but I mean... <laughs> Across yeah. the entire Nordics. <laughs> it could maybe be done in a, well, in a constructive way that right. still benefits everybody. I mean, we don't know what right. bene- has the biggest benefit. We're not mm. saying we right. think this is the best, so we're going to try it against this that we know is a bit inferior, mm. but yeah, more so of we a... We are not trying to do a uh, test versus placebo type of thing. Exactly. <laughs> I mean... It, maybe it'll be still possible to do in an quote-unquote ethical way to not... But I think it's a, a thinking about it. interesting and really radical thoughts, but I, I like it. And yeah. imagine <laughs> trying to sell that to the government. Right. <laughs> is it, is it, it difficult that? enough to try to get them to change policies yeah. or something we so, really know is better? That, we need to set this up so that it becomes a good study. Which, I mean, mm. in the end, I think they would understand, but that's a hard sell it is quite to hard. It is politicians. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's a brilliant thought. Yeah, definitely. Just to wrap up, Dr. Muntha actually tipped us off to a special issue of bioethics where he was a guest editor about antibiotic resistance and playing a role in there. So maybe we'll bring something up in the news section. And definitely leave the link to the whole special issue on this on, Absolutely. The, on the episode notes. Welcome back. So, as we said before, we're going to cover a little bit of the ethics uh, of antibiotics also here in the news section. And we went around the different articles published and we decided to pick one that we thought is very interesting topic, but it's also an open access article. So any of you can actually go in and read what we're going to talk about. So we're not going to cover it very, very, very in depth because this is one of these papers that is easily written and it can be followed by any of you at home. So what is this article? So this article is the International Dimensions of Antimicrobial Resistance, Contextual Factors Shape Distinct Ethical Challenges in South Africa, Sri Lanka, and United Kingdom. We thought that this was actually a very interesting topic to talk about because we often hear talk about how the cultural differences in different parts of the world will actually have a impact in how we change the guidelines, how we change the way that we relate to antibiotics and antibiotic use. And this paper 
introduces the dimension of ethics also mm -hmm. in these differences, these, these contextual differences between countries. So the paper talks about decision-making by doctors, like when a doctor has to decide if to give antibiotics or not, it's actually making an ethical decision. Yeah. And there's a dilemma there because, as we know, it's often talked about, the increased use in antibiotics might lead to an increased problems in, in resistance in the future. So the doctors are faced with this dilemma that need to decide if they're going to use antibiotics now to treat the individual patient or if they might make a more restrictive decision of not using the antibiotic now with the views that it will be better towards the future individuals that might have to face a problem of antibiotic yeah. resistance. Protecting the health of the current patients and like comparing the health of the current patients with the health of the future generations that don't exist yet but will have these problems. Which I think is a new dimension for doctors, right? Because yeah. doctors are traditionally trained to deal with the situation at hand mm -hmm. to treat the patients and that is their primary objective yeah but because of the complexity of AMR they now have to in addition to think about that also think about how the future would look like yeah it's a lot them. more weight on their shoulders right. it's a lot more and what on, they do now how it can affect the yeah. future right. right so what they actually did was to look into different parameters in these three different countries we remember South Africa Sri Lanka and United Kingdom yeah. and they look into these countries based on what are the incomes what type of society they have if it's a hierarchical society versus a non-hierarchical, if they have more individualistic or more uh, collectively oriented views of the mm -hmm. society, if they are able to compromise, to negotiate, uh, or on the other hand, they are more like indulgent or more driven to competition yeah. uh, of the different sectors. So they look at all those things and they analyze how these can actually affect the decision making of the doctors in the different yeah. places. And what other factors affect? If we can just go through some of the like central aspects. So one of the main things that they found that differed between these countries and had different effects was the visibility of the issue itself. I mean, South Africa has a very visible problem with AMR, specifically with in HIV patients and with drug-resistant tuberculosis. And doctors have a complete different awareness of the problem? Yeah, so doctors basically live day-to-day -day with the consequences of resistant infections. Yeah. So for them, I, I thought it was very beautiful in the paper, they say that this distance between the present and the future is actually a, bit, a little bit blur yeah. because it's not like the future is going to happen in the future. It's no. that for them, that future is actually now. Yeah. So they see that this situation actually might make the doctors be much more aware that the decisions they take today for individual patients my affect the situation of the resistance overall yeah. in now and in the future. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't as much of a problem in the other countries. I mean, Sri Lanka didn't have as... The doctors might not be as aware of the problem and not have the same knowledge because they don't see it as much. And then same in the UK, it's lower issues and you're more talking about a distant future or distant. We could talk about how distant, but Yeah, so in it's those settings, here. they are more much more prone to think about their patients yeah. here and now. And with that, we move into the second aspect that they look into, which is the rule of rescue. And the mm -hmm. rule of rescue is an ethical concept that means when are you willing to use something because it's the last thing that you can do yeah. for it. So in this case, we're talking about patients that will be really, really sick, that the only way mm -hmm. that you can actually treat them and maybe save their lives yeah. is by using antibiotics. Yeah, it's life-threatening cases. It's not preemptive. It's not anything like that. It's you're already there where you have this decision. And they talked about how in the UK, for example, diagnosis of sepsis, it might be overdiagnosed. It might be overprescribing antibiotics to try to prevent sepsis and there's a lot of focus on this I mean they're not willing to take any risks with sepsis 
and blood infections. So they are they might actually be overdiagnosing what yeah. might be a sepsis, but it's not. But because they consider because it's a the sepsis, risk. they will use the antibiotics for it. Yeah. Whereas in Sri Lanka, for example, they do face this rule of rescue very often mm-hmm. because of how the health system is built and the societal view on assessing healthcare. Mm-hmm. What they see is a lot of patients that are, uh, that attend to the the healthcare in a very late stage when yeah. it's like basically the only thing t- left to do for them not to die is to actually get an antibiotic. Yeah. So these are two contrasting situations of why the rule of rescue might be used now in mm-hmm. the present to use the antibiotics to treat the current individuals. Yeah. They also talk about the differences in prescription and what kind of incentives the doctors have to prescribe medications. And I thought there was an interesting example there where they're comparing the... The compensation by insurance companies, for example. Yeah. So in Sri Lanka, they say that many of the doctors are basically feel a requirement to fill the patient's desire in, in private health care. Because the doctors need the income from the private health care, they need to give the patients what they want because mm-hmm. they say, the patients will quote-unquote shop elsewhere if they don't get the antibiotics that they want. But in South Africa, while it's a similar system that the doctors might feel this incentive, this is balanced out by healthcare insurance reimbursement schemes, which work out to, you know, they might not be reimbursed as much from the healthcare system if they're providing antibiotics. Yeah, because this is a country where they know that using antibiotics wrongly can lead to this problem of resistance. Then they have already put in place some measures that will try to reduce this, uh, this type of use or extra use of antibiotics. So there are kind of stop-down measures that will say, okay, if you are giving antibiotics wrongly to your patients, we are not going to reimburse yeah. you from, from this insurance scheme. So And it seems to be pretty successful from, mm. what I, from what I've understood. So that's an interesting example where something has worked in one place and might be successful in the other as well. But then, of course, like we talked about, South Africa has a much more visible problem of AMR, mm-hmm. which Sri Lanka hasn't had yet. Overall, I think that, as they say, these yeah. ethical dilemmas and how the doctors might face these ethical dilemmas will be different in different contexts and Mm -hmm. this needs to be taken in account when new stewardship measures and new guidelines are put forward around the world so that it might not be the same and and how the country works might actually make doctors take decisions in different ways. Especially if we're considering like international treaties and international cooperations, you have to acknowledge that this is going to look different in different places, but it's the outcome that matters, not that the setup is the same in every country. Yeah. Yeah. But if we move on to the next one? Mm-hmm. Our next paper, it's, uh, as we always want to say, we like uh, the more sciencey and research We like paper. a balance of both. Yeah. We're one of each. Because we do like this more basic research as well. Yeah. So it's a pretty in-depth and dense article yes. published in uh, the journal Nature um, that was online from 4th of September, but officially published 12th of September. And it actually um, puts together two concepts that we have talked here before in the podcast. Some of you might remember that we had an interview with Sophie Helene working at the Imperial College London that she worked with bacterial persisters. And we also have talked before about plasmids. So now this paper kind of puts together the systems of persisters and plasmids and how these can two together maybe contribute to the spread of antibiotic resistance. So can you give us a brief, Jenny? I'll try. So the paper is called Salmonella Persisters Promote the Spread of Antibiotic Resistance Plasmids in the Gut. And just in that title, again, we have some key 
words so that we're just, we're just going to review real quick. Uh, so persisters are bacteria that don't that survive antibiotic treatment. Yeah, but it's a transient state. It's, yes, it's a, not a genetic thing. There's no permanent situation where they can survive antibiotics. It's really that they're surviving and not growing until the antibiotics leave the system. Then they can grow again some, sometimes. And this isn't really well understood why this happens. But mm-hmm. people like Dr. Sophia Lane are working on determining what this is and are sometimes asked what the clinical relevance of Could persisters be, yeah. is. And this is an example of that. So they're also looking at antibiotic resistance plasmids, which are little pieces of DNA not connected to the chromosome of the bacteria that in some cases can spread between bacteria and carry antibiotic resistance genes. That's why they are so important in, in antibiotic resistance, yeah. because they can move horizontally between one bacteria that has this plasmid that mm-hmm. can give resistance, and they can move to another bacteria that it was sensitive before, yeah. and by acquiring this piece of DNA, it becomes resistant. Yeah, and this is based on contact. It's, yeah. not, it's so, not based on like uh, generational growth. It's a one bacteria coming in contact with another and they can, this plasmid can spread. And it is well known that uh, these plasmids can move between bacteria and then mm-hmm. if there is a selective pressure like antibiotic resistance, yes. then the bacteria that contain this plasmid with the resistant genes or markers mm-hmm. will be selected for. Yeah. So what they're looking into in this article actually is that salmonella persisters that might be in an infected individual mm-hmm. can be donors, that means give the plasmid to a bacteria that doesn't have the plasmid or also be recipients of plasmids. And this can happen in the absence of antibiotics, Mm -hmm. which is the key thing here. You don't really need to have that selection for this transfer to happen, which is a little bit scary. (laughs) Yeah. And also just that one of the main findings that they find is that these salmonella persisters that are associated with gut tissue then become a reservoir for these plasmids. So without any sort of selection, like you said, they can spread this plasmid back to other bacteria after they've persisted as a reservoir. Yeah, because how, how they go about it is like an individual gets infected with this salmonella mm-hmm. orally, for example, that means that it will invite the guts. And then after that you have a sick individual because it's sick with salmonella. Mm-hmm. And then you give antibiotics to treat the salmonella. But a subpopulation of this salmonella will actually not be treated with, anti- will not be yeah. killed by the antibiotic. And these are the persisters that are found inside the tissues in mm-hmm. the gut lumen. And then what they saw is that after that antibiotic is being gone because you have already treated and you have killed the ones that could be killed. These persisters that are in the tissues, they are able to go back to yeah. the surface of the gut and then serve as donors of these plasmids that they contain. Yeah. So aside from just looking at the reinfection situation, you are looking at a situation where the plasmid can then spread to other bacteria. And, and they, they did a couple of very nice controls, which is yeah. checking that if you actually don't have this invasivity of the bacteria, if you reduce the capability of them to be persisters, you reduce the transfer of the plasmids. Yeah. So that means that this persistent state is actually limiting for this transfer of yeah. the plasmids. Interestingly enough, one of the things they did was vaccinate for salmonella. So that was one of the ways that they then reduced the amount of persistence was through vaccination of Kill with killed bacteria, yeah. salmonella bacteria. And then they didn't see as much spread or much more limited. Because they're the plas- not forming persisters yeah. at the same rate as they were doing it before. Because it's actually it seems to be the, the limiting step that initiates this is the actual reseeding event they call it which is when the the persister returns to the lumen that like that step is the limiting step and they also have shown that this can happen not only from persisters that will stay in the tissue in the gut but also from other systemic infections where Mm -hmm. persisters are formed in other tissues those can also reseed the gut and serve as donors and recipients of of plasmid transfer and they show I mean when we're talking about the gut we're talking about a lot of different bacteria one of the things they show is that this can spread to other 
between species exactly. as well. So it doesn't have to be just salmonella to salmonella, but with yeah. E. coli, they're also testing. And then they did another control, which was really good. It's like, of course, the main core of the work is done with plasmids that are easy to work with. Yeah. But they also tested the clinical relevance of these by using ESBL plasmid, which mm-hmm. is known because they're extended spectrum beta-lactamases. These mm-hmm. are plasmids that confer resistance to a lot of different antibiotics. Yeah. And they tested with that and they got the same results. So that yeah. means that potentially these can be a problem for the spread of these clinical relevant plasmids. Mm-hmm. And I think the authors made an interesting note towards the end of the article when they were concluding. They talked about how this might be of extra importance in animals when they see the spread because, I mean, salmonella infections are very common in those situations and this persistence might be extra important. This might be leading to, and there's a lot of antibiotic selection in animals when we treat like our animals that we're producing for food and livestock to, I mean, with antibiotics unnecessarily, then we're producing a selection mm-hmm. for antibiotic resistance and this might be promoted yeah. by the persistence. So this paper overall, it shows that bacterial persistence as a phenomenon, it can be related to antibiotic resistance, not only yeah. by creating persistence infections or reinfections yeah. after treatment, or because the bacteria are there longer, they might select for mutants, but also with the transfer of these plasmids that could confer antibiotic resistance to one or more than one antibiotic at, at once. Yeah. So we are going to leave the article link as well, although this one is under paywall, but there is also some coverage in the mass media so we're going to leave um, an article a good article about it as well for you to read in case you want to know more details yeah on a final note though I would also like to acknowledge that a big pioneer in the field of antibiotic resistance especially in the United States passed away recently passed away earlier this month Stuart Levy who was working at Tufts University I believe and we can leave an obituary to him as well because his work was very important for the field and especially in trying to promote the societal understanding that this is a problem and discovering some of the mechanisms of resistance he was a microbiologist and by background who worked on resistance of antibiotic resistance as well so we'll leave a note so you can learn a little bit more about his work and his life yeah he also published a good book apparently (laughs) so with that we close off for this month and we are actually working with something super exciting to bring to you in the coming months as well because the World Antibiotic Awareness Week is approaching and we Mm -hmm. are going to have our first year anniversary then so we're working to bring to you something a little bit more special for the date but before that we're gonna have our normal regular episode at the beginning of November as well so hope to have you with us then if you have any ideas as we said previously if you want to communicate with us about the future of the AMR studio what are you learning with us and what would you like to hear about just shoot us an email or Mm -hmm. a tweet or any any way you want to connect with us you're gonna find a way so see you next month bye bye For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.